Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, we continue our coverage on the COVID-19 crisis, and I want to talk a little bit about contact tracing technology. Uh, this will probably be the shortest Policy Punchline episode you'll ever get to listen. It's a excerpt that we cut out from our interview with Mr. Bruce Schneier, whom I will introduce in a bit. But just to give you a little bit background information on contact tracing technology, there's been so much buzz about this tech and its promises uh, to deliver the nuanced technical touch that can help us identify who we've been in contact with and, and eventually help policymakers identify regions that have a lot of people that are infected and therefore make sensible policies about when to open the economy. Uh, the way contact tracing technology works is like this, uh, and I'm quoting here from MIT Tech Review. Google and Apple, for example, are building a system to track contact between people who might spread the disease. The idea is simple. Since Bluetooth is constantly scanning for other devices, your phone can use wireless signals to see who you've been near. Somebody who has a positive diagnosis can tell the app which will inform everyone else who has been in the proximity to alert them about risks of possible transmission, unquote. Well, I'm not a technical person, as you may know, but after I've talked to some friends about this and after I've read some, some articles about this technology, I felt pretty good about the promises uh, and uh, the security it, it, tells, it tells us that they will deliver. Basically, by using Bluetooth technology, our phones can exchange information on who you've been in touch with, who you've been in close proximity with. And if you've been in the proximity of someone with COVID-19, your phone can alert you. So this sounds like a fascinating idea because it theoretically does away people's worry about mass surveillance because no location or personal data information are actually being recorded by the contact tracing app. So Google and Apple, in this case, have both promised that they are not going to use your personal data uh, for their surveillance capitalism business model to profit from it. And they're not even going to record uh, any data. They're, all they're going to do is develop this technology that uses Bluetooth signals and exchange with other uh, phones with the same technology and app. And you can know who you've been in contact with. And it sounds like a wonderful promise. Um, I talked to Mr. Bruce Schneier, who is a public interest technologist and the author of over a dozen books on internet and security issues. Uh, I interviewed him on his most recent book, Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyper-Connected World, uh, about his book. We were going to talk about internet and security and IoT, which is Internet of Things. Uh, and we recorded the episode on May 1st. And at the end, we also talked a little bit about COVID-19. And he said contact tracing is a dumb idea. It's a dumb technology. He does not believe in it. Uh, and he gave some very compelling reasons for it. So I do want to share this very small clip uh, just between uh, just our exchanges on the contact tracing technology. So hopefully it will provide you some insight. And also the episode is also co-hosted by uh, my friend, Yushi Sinha, who is a senior in Princeton, uh, majoring in computer science. Uh, she has worked in the intersection of IoT and the cloud and at Microsoft, and she has started her own startup, Wellpower, and she co-hosted the show with me. So she and I asked a couple quick questions on COVID-19 to Mr. Schneier, and he gave the following fascinating response. So here's what we had from our interview. 
So Mr. Schneier, why don't we talk a little bit about the COVID-19 crisis in this long interview, we've already done it for 40, 50 minutes, and we talked about uh, IoT, we talked about how government and corporations could uh, take advantage of the security flaws. Uh, what about in the COVID-19 crisis? Because I do think progress is being made, right? People are aware that this is not an opportunity that either the government or corporations should profit from my public health data. That's a big no. And people are delivering promising technology such as Bluetooth contact tracing technology that, that shouldn't collect any personal data and should just use this harmless Bluetooth technology to exchange location information to let you know whether you've been in proximity of someone. So isn't that a wonderful idea? What do you think of it? Yeah, I mean, not scheming anything. I think the apps are, are well designed for privacy protection. The problem is that contact tracing is kind of a dumb idea, and uh, I, I, we are finally coming around to that. So it's interesting to watch. Uh, Singapore was the most recent country to dump their contact tracing app, realizing this is actually not valuable. I mean, this is a standard security <laughs> problem of, uh, of identification. Right? And, and the thing to look at are false positives and false negatives. And unfortunately, using an app for contact tracing just has too high an error rate to be valuable. So think of the false positives. Like what are the times that uh, you, uh, the system registers a contact and you don't get the disease? For lots of reasons. Uh, the, uh, the apps aren't as accurate as, as people like to think. And between Bluetooth and GPS, there's a lot of drift. And there'll be, there'll be times when the app doesn't register that you're close. The app doesn't understand context. So you could be very close, but there is a wall between you, a glass partition, right? Any number of reasons why it's, it's a contact as far as the app is concerned, but doesn't count as far as the disease is concerned. And lastly, the percent chance that a contact, which is less than six feet, more than 10 minutes, doesn't result in a transmission is pretty big. So a lot of false positives. On the other hand, there'll be lots of false negatives. And those are times you get the disease and the app doesn't register, right? So everybody's not gonna have the app. Even Singapore, which is a pretty compliant population, only had a 20% penetration for the app. Again, the error rates in, in the, uh, the Bluetooth and GPS, right? times that the app doesn't think you're close enough, but you are, right? And also all the transmissions that happen further than six feet. So we've been reading about uh, transmissions that have happened in restaurants, across the room, through the ventilation system, uh, through surfaces that, that are touched and touched again at a later time. So I, we have this app. Very high, very high false negatives. I take the app. I go grocery shopping. Uh, I come home and it pings. You had a contact. But what does that mean? Should I isolate myself? No. Uh, there, we don't have ubiquitous, cheap, fast, accurate testing. I can't get tested. So the app tells me nothing useful. Same time, I go grocery shopping. The app comes back. It doesn't ring. Does that mean I'm safe? Well, it doesn't. You could have gotten the disease through any number of ways the app didn't register. So here's my problem. We give the app to people. They download it. All these errors happen. And suddenly people are now tweeting 
this app doesn't work. I got the disease. The app didn't say anything. The app said I got the disease. I didn't get the disease. And now everyone loses trust in the app. And the trust is vital. And having an app with so many errors is worse than having nothing at all because of that loss of trust. So, you know, I don't think Apple and Google are, are trying to sneak in some surveillance system through this app. Honestly, they have all the surveillance they need. I don't think the government <laughs> is either. It has all the surveillance it needs. I think there really is this desire of techies to do good, but this really isn't a problem that an app is going to solve. Real contact tracing is done by health professionals through interviews. Massachusetts is doing it this way right now. Uh, South Korea is doing it this way. And that works. It is not an app thing. And that's really why I'm not impressed with the apps as a solution. So what would be a good solution that you think could work from a technical perspective? Have you thought about it at all? Yes. Not to put you on the spot. Yes, please. Yes. Cheap, ubiquitous, fast, accurate testing. That's what will work. It has nothing to do with your smartphone. Just old-fashioned testing. Nothing no, to I do want new-fashioned testing. I want <laughs> fancy testing. I want drive-through testing. I want, I want people to be able to test themselves five times a day if they have to. I mean, I want the kind of testing where everyone knows exactly where they stand at all times. I mean, that's going to do something. If people would know, I mean, the problem is you can be asymptomatic. Right? You can pass on the disease without knowing you have it. That's what makes this so dangerous. If we can make that go away and give everyone a sticker that, that they can tape to their forehead that, that glows red when they have the disease, right? that would be great. And so that's the kind of stuff. I mean, it's science fiction, but that's what I want. Right? That's what will make a difference here. Uh, so contact tracing technology doesn't sound like uh, as promising as it sounds, but um, what if after recovery, right, after we've contained the virus in the recovery stage of the economy in a place like China right now where they collect uh, people's information and data and give you health passes and everybody has a QR code on their phone and say, uh, I have immunity, uh, immunity or I got it and I cured from it. So, so would that pose a serious concern to you? So, so this is so we, we talk about this as immunity passports. Right? The idea that I'm going to have some kind of wristband or code on my phone or something that says I have immunity, so let me into the crowded nightclub or Disney World or the sports stadium or the restaurant. Uh, I think we should think really carefully as a society before we do this. My guess is it's coming because that has such value. I think there are, dang, there are real liberty dangers here of having a society of haves and have-nots, of these sort of two tiers of citizen. And we should think very carefully about doing it. Uh, I mean, there are ways to do this correctly. You know, it's kind of no different than your driver's license. Right? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a credential you carry that gives you some permission, some capability. So we can do this technically. That's not hard. The real issues are, you know, are we a, do we as a society want to do that? Is that the kind of world we want to live in? I think, I think we're heading that way. I'm not convinced it is the right thing to do. But technically, there's no problem. And to follow up about what you just said about civil liberties in particular, and I mean, you alluded to this earlier as well, you know, during times of crises, civil liberties often are impeded. 
Um, but what can we do to ensure after this crisis, fingers crossed, uh, it does end eventually, what can we do, um, going back to this grassroots level, to actually make sure that, fine, maybe their civil liberties are impeded now for a little bit, but we will return to a state of the world in which they're no longer impeded. What can we do here? Well, we have to ensure that anything we do is temporary. I mean, the phrase we like to use is necessary and proportionate. I mean, we're okay with, as you said, in a time of crisis, you make trade-offs you wouldn't make otherwise, but they need to be necessary, need to be, need to be proportionate. And, and when the crisis uh, goes away, you need to return to normal time. And that's what we didn't do well with September 11th. We didn't return to normal time. The crisis was the new normal. In a health crisis, I think you're more likely to than in that, you know, if there is a contact tracing app on your phone, it's not going to be there in five years. It's going to be there for this moment that we need it. So that is the way to think of it. It's hard. You know, we have a lot of function creep and it's easy when, when a measure's in place used for other things and then suddenly you, you, can't, you can't lose it. In a place where surveillance will do really well in this crisis is some of the aggregate work you've seen. It's not based on individual surveillance, but it's based on population trends. So there is a, uh, a website, I forget the name of the company, that has an interconnected thermostat. Uh, sorry, not sorry, a thermometer, fever thermometer. And they will post aggregate data on people's temperatures all across the United States. And that is very useful in detecting hot spots for COVID. Now, that doesn't affect civil liberties. It's anonymous data. It's aggregate data. And it's really powerful. So you will see uh, this used uh, when we're testing how well social distancing is working. So on, so by and large, what are the what are the trends in this city versus that city on how well people are social distancing? Uh, that kind of aggregate temperature data. That's very valuable, and, and I like those uh, those uses of technology. And I think they give valuable insights to health professionals. So that was our interview excerpt from our conversation with Mr. Bruce Schneider. We actually had a one hour long conversation with him on his new book, Click Here to Kill Everybody. It was about Internet of Things, smart devices and uh, the, the dangers that smart devices could pose to our uh, Internet security's future. And we asked him a little bit about COVID-19 and contact tracing. And that was his thoughts and some of his doubts on technology. Uh, I thought it was so interesting that my co-host Ayushi and I should better jump onto it and, and have a post-interview discussion about that specific segment. And we would love to uh, peel off what Mr. Schneier was saying in a little bit more, because I feel like there are two layers of problems that Mr. Schneier talked about. The first layer of the problem is technology itself. So say that everybody is using this on their smartphones, the Bluetooth technology works well, does it actually pose a feasible way of helping us reopen our economy? Does it actually work? Uh, will it actually be uh, very not as effective as we think it is uh, because of false positives and false negatives? So that's the first layer of the question. And the second layer of the debate is really, uh, even if the technology works, uh, will people actually take, up, uh, take it up? Uh, there are certainly libertarian concerns. There are certainly many people who don't want to feel like they're being traced, even though this technology seems to pose a decentralized way of tracing you. Uh, they just don't want to be traced. And if it uh, makes people feel like they are uh, having a less likely of a chance to go to work, 
because they are using this app that tells them that they're getting in touch with everybody who has COVID, then they will feel less comfortable using it. So uh, I invited my friend Ayushi Sinha back to the studio with me, and then we're going to have a quick conversation about this topic. So Ayushi, thanks so much for having this conversation with me again. What, what do you think of the contact tracing technology itself? Why don't we jump in a little bit uh, since uh, you are the technical person here. You actually understand computer science much better than I do. Haha, <laughs> Tiger, you definitely flatter me. I think you did an excellent job of setting the stage um, and giving good overview. Um, and you allude to some of, I guess, the barriers that we are currently seeing with contact tracing. One, the technology itself. Um, you know, Bluetooth versus geospatial tr tracking. Two, you're relying on people to be good actors, not to turn off their Bluetooth. Um, three, you're actually, you know, assuming that everyone has a smartphone and particularly sometimes like the hardest hit communities don't always have access to this technology. Um, and you're also relying on the fact that people are going in to get tested and they're going to get tested fast. Um, so I think those are a bunch of variables that we sort of assume and in, in believing that contact tracing is going to be this golden ticket for us to return to normalcy. Um, but actually, I wonder if we could even think about it this way. Let, let's assume that all those variables like were you know held to be true. And we can assume that everyone's acting like collectively in the best interest of, of society and like all those things are true. I guess then it's actually interesting to think about the technology itself and is contact tracing effective? Um, and so in order to do that, I think we have to think about this definition of effectiveness, right? And so from contact tracing itself, effectiveness is actually defined as how many people do you need to, um, to test and to trace in order to like effectively, um, you know, stop and limit, you know, this disease. And so that's sort of how scientists are thinking about effectiveness of, of contact tracing. It's not necessarily the um, false positive or false negative rate of, dang, I have like a 95% of getting COVID because I ran into someone who had it. Yikes. Like, does this mean I have to go in uh, to get tested? Well, that's a really, really interesting point because uh, ultimately we want to use the contact trace technology to help us reduce death and bring us back to normalcy. Uh, so it's less about the specific statistics of false positive and negative per se, but rather that even if the technology works, uh, will our testing capacity catch up? Uh, will people actually follow the directions of the app? And, and, and those play a very big factor in terms of um, uh, the, the, the efficacy of the technology, because I, I think you mentioned a little bit more to me that the current stage of the design of the technology, which is the iterative way of doing contact tracing actually heavily relies on the fact that uh, people who have come across those who are, are tested positive, after they get the alert, those people can actually uh, immediately go to a doctor or get tested or something like that. It really heavily relies on that assumption that people act uh, swiftly and, and immediately. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about this uh, iterative versus single step approach to uh, contact tracing technology? Absolutely. So the single step approach to contact tracing is the more limited one, but let's start with that. In this process, um, whenever you are sort of notified that, hey, you may have, you know, COVID because you came in contact with someone who is uh, de definitely positive for, t has tested positive for COVID, you can think about it as if you're placed under the branch of that person who you came in contact with as like the head node. 
But honestly, this isn't realistic because we as humans interact with so many different people. And you might have actually interacted with multiple people who are, you know, at the heads of their, their own branches. So then how do you take that form of social you know, interaction into account? Um, and that's actually where iterative um, contact tracing comes in. You can think of iterative contact tracing as you, um, as someone who maybe like has, you know, a high likelihood of getting COVID to actually be connected to other, you know, branches, but really start your own branch. Um, because it's really important to consider that once you um, are, once you, as maybe that, that head node, right, have definitively gotten COVID, right, it's so important that one, you, you, you tell anyone who you've been in contact with, with pretty fast, um, and that they actually go get tested before the secondary cases actually spread, right? Because if I, you know, have interacted with my family, and my family, you know, my parents have interacted with their colleagues at work, my parents need to get tested before their colleagues get sick or get COVID. And so hopefully that sort of metaphor shows like the urgency, which with, you know, speed and like the ability to get tested plays a large role in um, making contact tracing effective. I would also just love to go a little bit deeper into the idea of false positives and false negatives really quickly, because I know you and I both took this probability theory class in Princeton, and then uh, maybe I could very quickly set stage to this uh, problem that our professor uh, usually bring up at the very beginning of the semester. So uh, it's an example on con conditional probability and false positives and false negatives. Uh, so let's say there are uh, there's a one in a thousand chance that somebody has this rare disease. And if you have the disease, you go to the doctor, uh, the test is 95% positive um, at the time. It's 95% accurate when you actually have the disease. However, even if you don't have the disease, the test is 2% positive, which means there's a 2% rate of false positive. And, and so what is the actual rate of you having the disease? Uh, we, we uh, For people who have not studied conditional probability, we might think, oh, 95%, because there's a 95% chance that if you have the disease, you will get test positive. But that's actually not true. Uh, after a, a series of rigorous calculation, the professor showed us there's actually 4.5%. There's actually only a 4.5% per per a uh, 5% chance that you get the disease, that you actually have the disease when you test positive. So I think it just shows how difficult it is uh, to really make sure that even if I get alert on my phone that says, Tiger, you got COVID, or you, you came across someone who had COVID, uh, that really doesn't mean that I actually got COVID from someone. And even if I go to the hospital and get tested uh, that I have COVID positive, there's also that sort of second layer of, um, you know, false positives and false negatives. So it's it, it just such a complicated mesh of, of webs of people and connections and false positives and negatives and, and probabilities that really complicate the matter. So, Ayusha, uh, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this very interesting example that you uh, told me right before the interview on this uh, interesting example, how contact tracing technology was effective in certain epidemics and not effective in certain others. So in SARS, in uh, uh, the, the hand, foot, mouth disease, uh, in smallpox, and et cetera. Yeah, I think you did a great job of laying these two layers of potential, you know, false positives. So hopefully our listeners 
don't hear that as, yikes, there's more uncertainty in this world. Can I not trust these institutions? But rather as, all right, you know, they're actually, you know, might, it might say that there's a high chance that I have COVID, but realistically, it's not that high. Um, so hopefully we're all a little more optimistic after listening to this podcast. But yeah, I'm super happy to expand on that. So contact tracing um, plays you know, an important role in controlling these infectious diseases. And it's interesting, though, in terms of how effective they've been in controlling. So what we find, actually, by looking um, at, at history, right, is that contact tracing is really powerful as a tool to uncover asymptomatic um, carriers. So you can see this in um, how it was very effective for controlling smallpox and SARS, partially effective for hand, foot, and mouth, and not super infected for the, effective for, uh, for the flu. And so, of course, which of these diseases is COVID most parallel is another debate in itself. But um, we've already seen contact tracing being able to play a really helpful role in identifying people who are asymptomatic, right? Like you may not have a fever, but if you, you know, have come into contact with someone with COVID and get tested and and do have COVID, um, with that contact tracing, you would have never been prompted to go get tested. Again, this relies on people's ability to get tested, to get tested fast, et cetera. Um, but I do think contact tracing does play, you know, um, an important role there. And, you know, some colleges and universities are even talking about how contact, you know, tracing um, apps will sort of almost might be even a requirement for um, incoming students or might be that golden ticket, as we say, to sort of returning to a life of normalcy. Um, and so, yes, clearly there are problems with um, false positives and negatives, but contact tracing has also been effective in, um, you know, previous diseases where there are a lot of asymptomatic carriers. It just seems that the statistics and, and uh, research really disagree with each other on, on this because I've read this one study that suggests that if contact tracers successfully detected 90% of symptomatic cases and reach 90% of their contacts, it could actually reduce transmission by more than 45%. Uh, meaning that if you could notify people and if they could get tested immediately, that would actually help reduce transmission drastically. But also just given the, the false positives and false negative example I, I, I gave just a couple minutes ago, it's just really, really hard to actually, uh, the probability is actually very low if you actually get the phone alert that, that says you came across someone who, has COVID. So for, for me, it seems that there are just all kinds of statistics and research out there that both support and not support this technology. But either way, the true important pillar of this foundation of this technology is that you have to get tested, testing, testing, testing. So uh, I was joking with my friend Arjun that day. I was basically saying that what if you uh, got alert that you have co you, you came across someone who has COVID, you go get tested, uh, it tested that you actually didn't get COVID. And you go to supermarket again tomorrow, and it tells you that you came across someone again. Because you have to go back to the hospital and get tested again, and does this just become an endless loop? So, I don't know. I, 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 it's kind of a joking scenario, but uh, with the challenges that you brought forth, uh, it, it just seems that there is really no uh, single solution or clear way out for this technology. In the sense that it would definitely tell us uh, the accurate results, or definitely tell us the not accurate results. Um, well. I suppose there's another thing that you brought up to me that's really interesting is that uh, people, 
might not want to do this because if they feel like this technology hinders them from going back to work, they wouldn't take it on. So you gave this example in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where you're from. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about, about those cases? Yeah, I definitely think that there is a divide in who is excited about contact tracing and who isn't. Um, and I think there are a couple factors that go into that uh, divisive line. So actually, let's, let's talk about this example of college students first, right? Um, oversimplification, definitely generalization, but college students who, you know, we're assuming have access to smartphones might say, yeah, if I, you know, opt in to um, the school, you know, giving me a contact tracing app that really relies on Bluetooth, such as like Apple and Google's app, um, right? That will allow me to return to a life of normalcy. That's not too different from, you know, my student procs having to swipe into every building to my dorm, et cetera. That's not too different from, you know, I was previously at Microsoft where we had badges to swipe into buildings. Um, this sort of supervision is not too different from a lot of people's daily lives. And so the fact that Bluetooth is being used rather than, you know, geospatial data, I think um, obviously is a, a little more better when it comes to protecting personal privacy. At the end of the day, though, all sort of contact tracing is there to identify an individual, right? You can't do this anonymously, truly. So that's maybe like the, the camp of people who are all gung-ho for contact tracing. But as you've alluded to, I think we should also think about this from the um, perspective of people who are in, um, you know, typically minority and or low-income communities who are honestly getting hit the hardest, right? For these communities, if you're asking them to um, opt into contact tracing with, as you said, a high rate of false positive, positives and negatives, they may not have COVID, but they may be asked to stay home because they came into contact with someone with COVID. And for someone like that, income volatility is so detrimental, right? Like not working for 14 days, having to stay inside for quarantine when you may not even have COVID is something that is really hard to fathom. So it's really interesting to see how the same technology um, can both like hinder people from sort of doing what they need to do to survive on a daily basis, but also empower other people to return to normalcy. Um, and so who we ask to opt in to, um, to what extent, I think is definitely going to be a larger social discussion. I absolutely agree with you. It, it just uh, pains me to think that uh, there will be some random uh, sweeping policy that will be released in a couple of weeks or months that basically says, oh, if you came across someone who has it or, or, or if your phone alert says that uh, you have COVID, uh, you have come across someone who has COVID, you have to stay home in 14 days and, and that loses all your income uh, for a short period of time. That It's a terrifying scenario for so many Americans. And I don't know if that will be the way of going back to normalcy. I mean, if you look at the political backlash just in these past two weeks, uh, when people say, you know, the LA mayor was saying that life may never go back to normal without a cure. And people were really mad about that. They're saying we've already following, we're already following all the social distancing measures. We are willing to keep the frontline workers safe. But if you're telling us that without a cure, we may never have a cure or, or vaccine. Uh, if without that, we just can't go back to normal and I am forced to lose my small business that I spent 10 years of my life building, I'd rather take a chance with COVID. 
so, so I, I think the sentiment of saying, uh, if your phone alert gives you this ne- positive or negative alert, then you may, may be able to work or not work. That's a horrifying scenario in terms of policy uh, that I personally can't even wrap my head around with. So, um, uh, But I think that's a really, really interesting discussion. Uh, Ayushi, is there anything else that, that you think we missed? Anything uh, interesting from uh, Mr. Schneider's comments on contact tracing that you would like to address before we end this interview? Yeah, absolutely. You know, on one hand, you really, in an ideal world, um, going back to what we started off with, right? You want everyone opting in. You want everyone to be good actors, um, not turn off their Bluetooth, et cetera, right? Um, but in order to do that, we need access to tests, accurate tests, fast tests. Otherwise, um, I think a lot of the concerns that we just raised like, are going to be forefront and very top of mind. Um, so yeah, just would love to conclude with that. Absolutely. I, I think it's a very important conversation to be had. And I'm glad that a lot of universities researchers are getting grants to, to think about those issues. And uh, honestly, I'm very happy that Apple and Google are working on those issues because chances are they've considered some of the concerns that we brought up. They, they definitely know about those things. I mean, there's a Princeton professor, Kyle Jamieson, uh, who is working on it. I actually reached out to him. Maybe we can uh, interview him soon about his current research on, on contact tracing and how this might be able to help with COVID-19. I, I think it's, it's a, definitely a fascinating conversation going forward. Anyways, thanks so much for joining me today, Yushi. R- really appreciate your help with all this. Awesome. Thanks, Tiger. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. If you'd like to listen to the full episode uh, of our conversation with Mr. Schneier, also co-hosted by uh, Yushi and I, uh, please visit us on policypunchline.com. Listen to that episode on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Uh, we asked some very, very interesting questions from why your car or home smart thermometer might kill you to uh, how uh, we should have be very pessimistic in terms of the progress of our technology policy uh, in the United States going forward. So uh, it's a fascinating conversation. We really hope you could enjoy this. Uh, anyways, thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.